This is an ABC podcast. Can your neighbours stop you from keeping a pet in your apartment? It's often small dogs, for example, fox terriers, that are much more likely to bark than a large Labrador or a large greyhound that will snooze on the sofa all day. Hello, Damien Carrick with you. Coming up, part three in our series on neighbour disputes. But first, it's five years since the Northern Territory Royal Commission into Youth Detention handed down its final report. That Royal Commission was prompted by revelations on Four Corners of appalling conditions at the Dondale Youth Detention Centre, including the unforgettable images of a child being tied to a chair with its head covered in a spit hood. Arendaman Nick Espy is the Legal Director with the Human Rights Law Centre. Nick Espy, you were the Director of Community Engagement with the Royal Commission. On this, the fifth anniversary, do you think it achieved what it set out to? Look, I don't think it's achieved entirely what it had set out to do. I still think we have a long way to go. And from my perspective, we're a long way behind schedule. We can't partially implement recommendations and then change or repeal or roll back recommendations that, that, that are you know, a crucial part of rebuilding what was admittedly a broken youth justice system. Are the conditions still terrible for children in youth detention centres? We are still hearing concerns about conditions in youth detention and that's here in the Northern Territory and obviously elsewhere in the country. I guess first and foremost detention is not the answer for children that come into contact with the justice system. And when you watched the recent Four Corners program locking up Kids Australia's failure to protect children in detention, that that included CCTV footage from the Banksy Hill Youth Detention Centre in WA showing a child being forcibly restrained by multiple guards in a dangerous, what's known as folding position. What was your response when you saw that recent footage? It's horrific to watch that. It's very concerning to see the same sort of things continue. You know, some may say it's Groundhog Day and, and we haven't gone anywhere, which is very disappointing. Australia is one of, as I understand it, one of the few countries in the developed world where we actually lock up children as young as 10. Why do you think that is? I don't understand how we can continue to lock children up particularly at at such a young age. Almost all the time, 100% of the children here in the Northern Territory that are locked up are Aboriginal. We have had a Royal Commission that's recommended investing in community-based solutions. We're way behind that here in the Northern Territory. That simply hasn't been the response and the resources invested sufficiently in, in that regards. We've had the same sort of response being served up by the announcement of 40 more police being sent to Alice Springs to deal with crime, in particular youth crime. Just a few years ago, a commissioner was saying that we cannot arrest our way out of this problem, yet here we are, we have 40 more police as seemingly the only answer uh, to youth crime. There was a leaked report of the Council of Attorneys General, which all the Attorneys General pretty much recommended that the age of criminal responsibility be raised from 10 up to 14. Government has been sitting on that for for a number of years. Yes, they have. 
there was obviously initial recommendation to the Royal Commission to raise the AIDS, but recently following that report that you've suggested, the Government in Northern Territory has committed to raising the age, unfortunately, only to 12, which I would say, and a wealth of evidence would suggest that it should be raised to at least the age of 14. How old are the youngest people in Northern Territory Youth Detention Centres? To my knowledge and recollection, there have been children this year as young as 10 that, that have ended up in youth detention, which is far too young. Children of that age should be in school, that they should be helped to be in school, to be home with families and in, in loving and, and caring, safe environments, um, not in prisons. Arendaman Nick Espy, the Legal Director with the Human Rights Law Centre. The Northern Territory Parliament is set to pass legislation raising the age of criminal responsibility from 10 up to just 12. So why do some children commit crime? Criminologist Dr Natalie Gately at Edith Cowan University in WA was granted unprecedented access to children coming before the Children's Court in Perth. We were permitted to go into the Children's Court of Western Australia and talk to children for those who had admitted to having a burglary offence. We asked them, have you ever committed a burglary, whether you've been caught for it or not. For those people, we wanted to find out why they burgled, what their motivation for burgling was and how they burgled, how they chose a house and got, you know, selected a premise to burgle. You spoke to 50 young West Australians, kids. Uh, were you able to ask them if they were Indigenous or not Indigenous, which, is, of course, is a, a, an important question given, the, you know, the really dreadful uh, Indigenous incarceration rates in this country? No, we weren't able to ask those questions, but we've got to understand that we're talking to children here, probably some of the most vulnerable young people in Western Australia. So that idea that there was lots of barriers or or conditions put around us interviewing children to make sure that we did no harm and didn't upset them. So therefore, asking their indigeneity status or asking their ethnicity status was not something we were allowed to ask. So what did you find? Why do they steal? What did they tell you? A lot of them just saw it as their needs or their perceived needs and the only way they could get the things that they need. So eight out of the 50 only ever stole food. They were quite adamant that they'd never stole anything else. They went in, they took maybe a sandwich from the fridge or something fresh from the fridge, which they ate on the spot. And then they would perhaps take something from the freezer or the pantry to take home to share with family. So that was the sort of food items. The other was very much around things that they thought that they needed or they could gift on. So they could quite often steal toys things that they could keep themselves or that they could share with family members. And the other big issue was around drugs. So their money for drugs, uh, money to either buy drugs, goods to trade for drugs or to pay back a drug dealer that they had a drug debt to. And you're talking about 50 young West Australians. What was the age range? It was between 11 and 17. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. 11, 17. They're the people that were in the children's court. So, yeah, we've got quite young people with a substantial cannabis habit, a daily cannabis habit, and therefore then, you know, choosing to to steal to be able to fund that habit. So it's not just at the older end of the age range where uh, stealing money for drugs or stealing drugs was an issue? No, it was actually right down that age range. So, as I say, these kids were some of the most disadvantaged, had very chaotic lives. And I think drug use was one of those ways of managing that stress and, and trauma in their lives. What 
did you learn about the dysfunction in their lives? What, what were you learning about housing and schooling from your research? They were very transient accommodation. They were changing homes a lot. They weren't living in stable accommodation. Only a few lived with both parents. And although we weren't allowed to, again, ask questions around imprisonment, quite a lot of them self-disclosed that one or more of their parents were in prison. So they had these very transient lifestyles, living with different people in different accommodation. And that also came around to them not attending school. So 90% of the sample were not attending school and they were struggling academically or they were you know, failing to sit still and concentrate in class. They didn't like the teacher or they weren't fitting in with the other students that meant they weren't going to school. And of course, that just gives them more opportunity to roam the streets around the daytimes and pick victims to burgle. So Natalie Gately, what did you find? What influence did family and friends have on decisions to burgle? Ultimately, all of the kids stole with other people. So what we found was where they learned to burgle was most likely to be their friends or their family members. And this could be a cousin, a dad, a brother. They stole in groups with friends. So there was very few that actually did solo burglaries. They were out in groups doing it together. You know, some of it was around peer pressure or just doing things because they were out in a group. But for the searchers who'd gone out to burgle, yes, they always with family or friends. And what percentage of this group had had previous contact with police? Over 80% had previous contact with police, but nearly all of them talked about having police around their houses when they were quite early for other matters. So whilst 80% were talking about them having contact with police themselves, most of them remembered police coming around the house at really young ages, four or five, six type ages. And 70% of them had been in court for previous offences. So these are sort of the repeat offenders. I think in the whole sample, only eight of them said that this was the first time they had burgled. Most of them were repeat offenders. And we're talking about the people who live in the greater Perth metropolitan region as opposed to rural and regional and remote Western Australia? Yeah, most of these would have been metropolitan children because they have children's courts in other jurisdictions that would be, would be dealing with these. So this is very centralised to a metro population. So Natalie Gately, your research paints a picture of, of a group of pretty marginalised young people who are doing it tough at home. 20% of them are just stealing food, for goodness sakes. What do you think is the take-home messages from your research? With all of this, the idea is that we're trying to prevent it from happening. Burglary has real consequences for victims. And, you know, it's not making light of the experiences of victims. They feel traumatised. They feel that their houses have been violated. They're quite often not covered by insurance. And they have, you know, all the other trauma that goes on with being burgled. So the idea is to prevent those offences. But when you look at the kids that are doing those offences, they are some of the most vulnerable children in our society who are still because of need, not necessarily greed. They're very immature in the, their thinking, but they can't see a legitimate way of getting things that they need. They need stable accommodation and stability in their lives and be attending school and trying to, you know, fit in with society rather than just becoming more and more and more antisocial and progressing onto those sort of more life course persistent offenders. So we need to look at the supports that are provided to, to, to those kids and their families. We need to look at the supports, we need to look at the drug use, 
you know, many of them are describing traumatic past, chaotic lives, self-medication. Some of them have had mental health issues which are not being addressed. And the use of drugs is, is sort of very prevalent in this, this group of kids. And Natalie Gately, what were the living arrangements of, of this group of people? We had eight young people that reported living with both parents. They were the minority. 11 lived solely with their mothers and some sort of other person. 13 lived with mother and others in some sort of a shared care or split care situation. So they might stay with mum a couple of days, but then it was with the grandmother, the aunties. Four lived with their fathers and the rest were in some sort of a foster care or Department of Communities type of housing or care program. Natalie Gately, thank you for speaking to The Law Report. Most welcome. Thank you for having me. Criminologist Dr Natalie Gately. Dr Jocelyn Jones, a Noongar woman, is a senior research fellow with the National Drug Institute at Curtin University in Perth. She's about to publish new research based on 48 interviews with Indigenous kinship carers. We went to the Kimberley, to the Pilbara, to the Southwest, to the Perth metropolitan area and the Murchison Midwest. And a lot of these carers were not getting enough support. So the majority of them were in the middle age brackets between the, the 50 to the, to the 70 year old age bracket. So these are Aboriginal kinship carers who are already suffering some chronic illness themselves. They may have multiple children in their care. We had one family in the Perth metropolitan area that had 10 children in her care and two of those had disabilities. So we've got kinship carers are trying to take on the children in their family, their grandchildren. The majority of these carers were grandparents. They're trying to look after the children in their families um, and there is some cultural obligation for this to happen but the many of them weren't getting the right support that they needed from the department. What kind of support are we talking about? Are we talking about financial support? What are we talking about? A lot of these kinship carers were in homes with accommodation with, you know, a house with two or three bedrooms. So they needed a more suitable accommodation to accommodate multiple children in in their care. They needed better financial support from the Department of Child Protection. Um, Within that financial report, they weren't aware of what they could get access to, what support they could get. So there was a whole lot of lack of information about how they could find support. So when we were talking to these, they're wanting support around training. A lot of the children that were being cared for by kinship carers had severe health conditions or so neurodevelopmental um, disabilities. So we had 20 um, children in that cohort that had been diagnosed with a neurodevelopmental disability. We had 14 that had been diagnosed with trauma and mental health, 16 with um, speech and hearing problems. And within those disabilities, we had children who had um, ADHD, global developmental delay, intellectual disability and cognitive impairment. Um, FASD, fetal alcohol syndrome disease, autism. And what about the healthcare system? I mean, is the healthcare system stepping in to provide 
help to, to, to these children, but also to their carers as well? Carers are having to manage behavioural problems and they're not sure what what condition or what assessments, um, access to assessments, so that's a big issue. There's two or more year access to get a paediatrician assessment completed. And, and do you think that would impact on, on issues like um, the behavioural issues or, or the um, youth offending issues that we're seeing? Uh, yes, I think it would. And as a report done by Telethon um, Kids Institute found, I think it was 89% of Aboriginal children in Bankshire a, couple, a few years ago had, had one or more neurodevelopmental disorder after they did some assessments there. So we do know that there are, you know, these are the children that are sitting in Bankshire, the kids that are in child protection system and the children that have got disabilities. So we have to try and find support around these children. They need access to, you know, paediatrician assessments, ongoing paediatrician reviews. They need occupational health and therapy. They need speech therapy. They need to have access to proper learning. So disability support workers to be able to work with them and work with families as well. Dr Jocelyn Jones from the the National Drug Institute at Curtin University, thank you. Thank you for speaking to The Law Report. Thank you, Daniel. This is The Law Report on RN. I'm Damien Carrick. Up next, the third part in our series, Know Your Rights, where we dig into who's in the right in the eyes of the law when it comes to disputes with (laughs) neighbours. There needs to be a little bit of give and take between neighbours. There are some trees that are actually nicknamed neighbour haters. In any type of neighbourhood dispute, speak to your neighbours as early as possible and as often as possible. You're not entitled to allow your animal to disturb neighbours. Once you've started that legal process, it can get very uncomfortable with the neighbours. Pets. Lots of people adore them. And most are treated like members of the family. But some people don't like animals and they don't want to be around them. That's fine. To each their own. What we do in our own home should be nobody else's business. Or is it? I'm Damien Carrick and in this episode of Know Your Rights, we're digging into whose side is the law on when it comes to pets and apartments. Well, it's a very high percentage of people who own pets. I think that last time I checked, it was something like over 80% of people at some point in their lives had owned a pet. When it comes to apartments, it's still a minority of Australians who live in apartments, but obviously that's been rapidly growing, particularly in inner city areas and in big cities like Melbourne and Sydney. Macquarie University Professor Cathy Sherry is an expert in strata title law. She says if you buy an apartment, you don't have an automatic right to have a pet in your apartment. Traditionally, it has been possible for owners' corporations or body corporates to ban residents from having any kind of pet in an apartment. But in New South Wales, a five-year legal battle and one little dog changed all that. There was a relatively recent Court of Appeal decision called the Cooper decision about a little schnauzer called Angus who lived in a uh, high-rise building in the centre of Sydney and Angus's parents won a court case where 
the New South Wales Court of Appeal said that it was not acceptable for an owners corporation to write a bylaw that regulated what people did inside their own home if it didn't really have an effect on anyone else. What that meant was that an owners corporation can't just create a blanket bylaw banning people keeping pets because that pet might not have any meaningful effect on anyone else. The decision in Cooper was really strengthened, however, by a change in the legislation in New South Wales so that the the, uh, Strata Schemes Management Act was changed to say that owners corporations uh, cannot unreasonably ban people um, keeping pets and the regulations now define what is unreasonable and the bar is very high indeed. So owners corporations can only ban an animal if a particular animal in a particular scheme is a habitual problem. So barks repeatedly or repeatedly damages common property or repeatedly runs at people or threatens or menaces them or is uh, some kind of health hazard because of uh, some kind of communicable disease that the animal may have or that they have some kind of parasite infestation. But it's a very high bar indeed. So in New South Wales, as an apartment owner, your um, scheme can't ban you having a pet. Can body corporates or strata title corporations still make rules that put restrictions on pets, like requiring them to be on leashes or not allowing them in a certain lift or, or that kind of thing? Yes, they can certainly still regulate them. So, for example, requiring an animal to be on a leash is a perfectly acceptable regulation. However, there's a lot of bylaws that, I mean, to be honest, just say outright silly things. So requiring people to carry their dog across common property at all times, or if their dog is too big because it's a 50 kilo Labrador, uh, you have to put it on a trolley and wheel it across common property. Regulation like that is just silly. And hopefully we'll see those kind of bylaws disappear now that owners corporations are discovering they don't have quite such blanket powers to regulate whether people have pets or how they keep them. And if these body corporate bylaws aren't well thought out, they can actually backfire. It's really standard for apartment buildings to ban all dogs over 10 kilos. Now, I don't think you probably have to know very much about dogs to know that it's often small dogs, for example, fox terriers, that are much more likely to bark than a large Labrador or a, you know, a large greyhound that will snooze on the sofa all day. So what you end up is with really irrational regulation so that you're actually prohibiting the dogs who are least likely to do the thing that's going to be a problem in an apartment building, and that is barking. And so, for example, the New South Wales law, the really good thing about the change in the New South Wales law is now it prevents buildings prospectively banning pets or animals that they know nothing about, just deciding, oh, those kind of dogs are a problem. We don't want those kind of dogs. Some dogs are a problem. And if they're a problem, they most certainly should be regulated. I'm not suggesting for one second that anyone should have to put up with barking dogs. But it doesn't make any sense to try and guess what a particular kind of animal will be be like based on its weight. Oh, it's 15 kilos. It's going to make more noise than a nine kilo dog. That's irrational. And we've got lots of really poor pet bylaws as a result of that. Same with the number of animals. It may be that someone can have three dogs or four dogs in an apartment. It doesn't actually have any effect on anyone else because those animals are very well managed. The question is, is the animal or are the animals actually causing disturbance to other people. So around the country, we have different laws when it comes to pets in apartments. Is that fair to say? Yeah. So in New South Wales and Victoria, you can't ban pets outright. In Queensland, you also can't ban pets outright. It used to be very common, but you can't have unreasonable regulation and courts up there have decided that blanket bans are not a form of regulation. You can regulate animals, but you can't have a blanket ban. And in other states, owners corporations do have a say and some schemes probably are banning pets outright. But I think that we're seeing a change all across Australia and we'll get to the 
the point where we'll realise that if your neighbour has a pet, that's none of your business until that pet disturbs you. If the pet doesn't disturb you, then it's no more your business than a pet in the neighbouring freestanding house in an on-strata housing development. So if you own an apartment in most parts of Australia, you now have a clear right to keep an animal. But what about if you rent an apartment or a house? Can the owner of the property make it a condition of the lease that you cannot have a pet? Renting is definitely in a very intense state of flux around Australia in relation to pets, but it is important to keep the two areas of law separate so they're not the same thing. So just because your owner's corporation doesn't ban pets doesn't mean that that determines the terms of your lease. But in relation to renting, we're in a real state of change in Australia. So again, Victoria's really leading the charge. Victoria's got what I think is really good legislation. So recently, Victoria changed its legislation to say that if tenants want to keep a pet, they have to ask their landlord's permission they have to fill in a pet application form. But if the landlord wants to refuse permission, the landlord has to go to VCAT and get VCAT to approve it, which I think is a really interesting change in the law. It puts the onus on the landlord to have to prove why they shouldn't allow a pet. And thus far, VCAT has approved most pet ownership applications by tenants. So I think that's a really interesting change in the law. Queensland's about to change its law. There's discussion of it in WA and there's discussion of it right now in New South Wales. And the push does seem to be that we should be relaxing the rules for tenants. So it's not just simply a question that landlords can say no outright, which has always been the law and remains the law in many states. And what have been some of the decisions under the the new Victorian laws? I looked at one this morning, which was quite interesting about some people who wanted to keep, I think it was a German pointer, their lovely hunting dogs. They had a rooftop terrace. The landlord was concerned about the fact that the dog might jump off the rooftop terrace and harm the dog, obviously, and harm people below. The idea of animals falling off balconies is not entirely fanciful. It sometimes does happen with cats and ideally if people let their cats out on their balconies, they should really have nets. But VCAT decided that, you know, on balance that really isn't a risk. I think that was the case of the little uh, German short-haired pointer puppy called Reggie, I think that was his name. Yes, I think that was it. So it's an interesting case. VCAT certainly, I think, is very sensibly leaning in favour of saying we shouldn't be unreasonably banning pets because there's always recourse for landlords. It's not to say that landlords have to put up with damage. If pets damage property... Landlords can take it out of the bond. WA is the only state that allows landlords to take a pet bond. In all other states, it's illegal. But obviously, landlords do have bonds that cover any damage to property. So if a pet does damage to property in the same way as if adults or children do damage to property, landlords do have a bond that they can have recourse to. And it's a much more sensible way for the law to operate. So not through imagination or conjecture or we think this animal is going to be a problem. If it is a problem, it is regulated. Animals are not entitled, you know, you're not entitled to allow your animal to disturb neighbours, whether you're in a freestanding house or an apartment or a rental property, it doesn't matter what. There's legislation that regulates everybody's animals. You're not entitled to allow your dog to disturb your neighbours and you'll get a visit from the council dog whisperer to talk to you about it and ultimately fines can be imposed under legislation. There really isn't any reason for people living in apartments or people who are renting to be regulated in any other way. Regulation should kick in when an animal causes a problem. But what happens if you have a dispute with a neighbour and you live in an apartment complex? I mean, do you go to the council first? What's your first port of call? So 
So you can simply ring the council. I have heard tell that some councils will say if you live in an apartment building, you need to speak to your owner's corporation, which I think is a bit unfortunate because the councils are kind of nice, informal and kind of impersonal way of dealing with these problems. But the owner's corporation certainly does have the power to deal with it. So even aside from bylaws, all strata legislation has provisions in it that say you may not use your lot or common property in any way that causes a nuisance or a disturbance to other people. And that covers everything, not just, you know, animals, it covers smoking, it covers noise, all sorts of things. So it's an inherent part of strata legislation that you can't disturb other people. So in relation to owners' corporations who are really concerned about pets, the fact is they're covered anyway. You can't ever use your apartment in a way that disturbs other people. The legislation already prohibits that. Macquarie University Law Professor Cathy Sherry there, an expert in strata title law. Next time on The Law Report's Know Your Rights, what about the right to light? While at the moment it seems like it's definitely um, skewed in favour of uh, the neighbouring developer and against the, um, the overshadowed solar panel owner, um, there are some indications that it may be starting to go the other way, but it's a fine balance, fine balance to tread between the reasonable redevelopment of one property and the protection of the right to the protection of solar access to the adjoining property. And to hear more about your legal rights when it comes to noisy neighbours or bothersome branches, search Know Your Rights on the ABC Listen app. That's the Law Report for this week. A big thank you to producers Christina Kukolia, Maria Tickle and to technical producer Brendan O'Neill. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more law. Hello, it's Richard Ader here. I'm a huge fan of The Law Report. I never miss it. I love the way that Damien so expertly guides you through something that maybe you didn't even know about, but he does his thing and now you do. We try to do something similar on the money. Technically, our focus is economics, but really it's about how different things connect to each other. If you like The Law Report, and you do, you might like the money. You can find it on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.